Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. In Revelation, we have studied over the last several weeks, I hope, that this uh, letter written by John to us from this revelation of Jesus Christ, which means it's from Jesus and about Jesus, has been an encouragement and a comfort to you all. I hope that as we've been working through the images in Revelation, uh, they become less fearful, less frightening, a little bit more understandable. I know that uh, all of Scripture is supposed to be read in community, and Revelation is no different. We're supposed to read Revelation in community with other believers, um, not just in our own community, but all those who have gone before us can, and, and written about and talked about Revelation, and we use our community to help us guide us through those images because uh, they can be pretty complex, they can be a little intimidating, and if we don't have a little bit of guidance, we can go off on a rabbit trail uh, making up interpretation of these symbols that really God never intended. So I hope the last 10 weeks that if we've looked at Revelation, it has been a comfort and encouragement to you. And chapter 19 and 20, where we're at today, I hope is no different. In fact, I hope it is even more so a comfort and a motivation because of the two outcomes Jesus wants us to see from chapter 19 and chapter 20. And these two outcomes that should motivate us and should comfort us and should even transform us from within, uh, within our souls are, are, is this. And if you take notes, you can write these two outcomes down. Uh, it's pretty simple. You may not have to even write it down. You might even be able to remember it. Number one, Jesus wins. And number two, Satan loses. I remember not too long ago, I saw this bumper sticker, and I kind of want to get one for my car. And it's this bumper sticker. It had a devil on it. And then right beside the devil, it said, Satan is a loser. And uh, that, is the, that is what Revelation teaches us time and time again. Jesus wins and Satan loses. And uh, we, we're going to start in chapter uh, 19, and we're going to see at verse 11 why Jesus wins. And one of the things that declares his victory to us, three of the things that declare his victory to us, is uh, his name, his aliases, his uh, appearance, and his actions. His aliases, his appearance, and his actions. Those all declare victory in Christ, and that's what he wants us to see here in chapter 19. It's one of the outcomes that encourage, encourages and motivates us. Here's uh, chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, says Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In this one small passage, and I wish I kind of just want to stay here all day, the symbols are so 
one right after another, and they're so big, but they all declare that Jesus wins. He is victorious. First, uh, let's look at his aliases, his names. In Revelation 1-5, Jesus is introduced as the faithful witness. And here, in chapter 19, he is faithful and true. Faithful witness in 1-5, that word witness is the, where we get the word martyr from. And that's anyone who gives their testimony and they stay with their testimony even when facing death. Jesus, the faithful and true witness, gave his testimony about who God is and what God is about, and they killed him for it. This is where we get the word martyr from, and it is uh, kind of um, just a coincidence that tomorrow has been declared by the voice of the martyrs as remember the martyr day. Those who have gone before us who are remembered because they gave their life for Christ. They gave their life to declare that Jesus is true. This is what we read in chapter 12 of Revelation, that when Satan attacks, it's okay. We will have victory even if he kills us because we trust in the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and we don't even fear death. There's a little bit of a feedback from my microphone. Are you all hearing that? I wonder if I move just a little bit. Still there? Let me try that. Jesus wins. He also has a secret name. No one could have power over Christ. Even demons, when they know Jesus Christ, they don't have power over him because he rules over everyone. And his name is the Word of God. John, who uh, Jesus is giving this revelation to, wrote the gospel. Remember the gospel of John? It begins Verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus is the Word. He's the image of the invisible God, and as one author puts it, the very embodiment of the God's spoken will. And He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And we should take comfort in the fact that there's no higher, stronger, or wiser power or being ever. He not only rules over every power and authority and over go every government and even over celebrities, he created them and he created us to rule with him. It reminds me of the lyrics of the songs, how beautiful the name that we sing a couple of weeks ago. You were the word at the beginning, one with God the Lord most high, your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ my King. It's been said, and many times, but most recently it's been said a lot, that Sunday morning is the most segregated part of all America. But if we are focused in on the name of Jesus, we have unity. And if we say the name of Jesus and we say it out loud, we're not only declaring that we follow him, but we're also reminding ourselves of who we worship and why we worship him. And his name is beautiful. Why don't we say his name together out loud, Jesus, on the count of three, but you got to say it like you love him because he is our Savior and our Master, our Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And it will psychologically and emotionally and spiritually even make you feel better if you say his name because it's beautiful. On the count of three, let's say his name out loud together. One, two, three, Jesus. Yeah, we're united under Jesus. He wins. Even by his name, we know he, he wins. But we also know he wins by his appearance. 
The white horse is symbolizing victory. His eyes blazing because he sees all and knows all. Every, there is nothing that falls outside of his realm of knowledge. And on his head, many crowns symbolizing his rule over every nation, tribe, language, and even history. He's even ruling over our time right now. We do not, if we are following Christ, we do not wring our hands and fret the same way non-Christians do. We know God is in control and we know He rules, so we do not get scared. We definitely don't get scared of death. That doesn't mean we don't live and live with wisdom, and it doesn't mean we don't strive to live with everything we have here to give Him glory, but it means we don't fear death. We know Jesus wins. And I don't want you to miss this one important appearance of him. He's on a white horse. His eyes are blazing. He has many crowns on his head. And his robe, don't miss this one, his robe is dipped in blood. We know that Jesus makes war and he judges by dying on the cross as our sacrificial lamb. Through his sacrifice, he overcomes the forces of evil, he binds the works of Satan, he defeats sin, and he destroys the power of death. He is robed in his own blood. This is why, as followers, we follow him, we are clean, white as snow, because we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, and we've been made holy and good and righteous. We've been given new life, created in Christ Jesus, to do the good works that he prepared for us to do. And when we follow the army of God, we follow him with good works. Revelation, time and time again, over and over again, calls Christians to be faithful and true because Jesus our Lord was faithful and true. Time and time again, Revelation reminds us to stay faithful and endure all the way to the end, doing good deeds, loving your enemy, praying for those who attack you, stopping racial injustice, helping the poor, protesting the murder of the unborn, providing foster care and adoption for babies. This is how we do good deeds that are declared righteous and good by God. The army of God, clothed in good deeds, that spring from following and imitating our Lord, sacrificially living so that we can share love with others. Jesus wins. Let's say that together. We said Jesus already together. Let's say Jesus wins together. Can we try that on the count of three? One, two, three. Jesus he does. And if we're with him, that means we will stand victorious too. One of the questions asked in chapter 6, when uh, John was taking us, when Jesus was revealing to John the very end of the world and the wrath and judgment of the second coming, and this happened all the way back in chapter 6, it happens again several times in the book, the question was asked, who will be able to stand under the wrath of the Lamb? And it's those who stand with Jesus. We are victorious. Jesus wins. Later, it asks the next question, what do we do in the meantime? What are we supposed to do while we're standing? Since we can't be defeated, God is going to protect us spiritually, and we know that even if we encounter death, it, it ushers us in to the new heaven and new earth. What do we do in the meantime? We stand firm in holy living and witnessing, witnessing, bearing witness to what Jesus has done and what he is doing to change our lives. Jesus has always won, and he's the victor even now. He was and is and is to come, but in this image of chapter 19, he just is and was because he has arrived in victory. 
But he's not arriving in victory like victory is just now happening at the end days. No, he is victorious even now. There's no point in any time, no part of any history where Jesus is not the victor. Even when he went to the cross and gave up his own life, gave up his own spirit, willingly laid down his life, he was still in complete control and in victory. It's only in the last days that every eye will see and every knee will bow and everyone will understand that he is victorious and has been all along. Are you living, we have to ask this question, I think Revelation is asking us this, are you living and behaving as though we are in a world where we are victorious? His actions certainly reveal that he wins. And this is one of the actions out of the sword, out of his mouth, coming out of his mouth, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The sword that comes out of Christ's mouth is an image for the word of God. It's the same word that is the gospel that he strikes the nations down with. This is the same word in chapter 10 where John says, it was sweet in my mouth, but it turned bitter in my stomach. This is the same word that when we go bear witness for Christ and we tell people Jesus is Lord, that they either accept it as a victorious chant and they want to be a part of it, or they deny it and reject Christ and hate you for it. This is the sword Jesus mentions in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. When you tell people the gospel and when you tell your family members the gospel, this is why father will betray, this is why son will betray father, why daughter will betray mother, this is why people in your own household will hate you. It's because of the sword of Jesus' mouth, his gospel, his word. Jesus died and rose again. And if those things are true, which they are, it divides people greatly. The world says it hates Jesus and it will hate any of his followers. Satan cannot attack Jesus, so he has to try to attack his followers. In John chapter 6, uh, in John, I think it's chapter 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I know some of your translations say trouble, but the word is tribulation. And it's used several times in Revelation, even though not all English translations will translate it that way. The final action here in this victorious outcome is that Jesus, with justice, judges and wages war with the word of his mouth, the gospel. If you reject Jesus Christ and you go down a path that leads to death, you are going to be destroyed by that same word when he comes back. If you accept Christ and embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, that he rose from the dead and you entrust your life to him, you are embracing the word and you will stand victoriously with him. And that leads us to verse 17, a declaration that Jesus has won. It's kind of a nightmare though. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice, to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. This great supper of God is a contrast between the supper of the Lamb. 
the wedding supper of the Lamb, mentioned eight verses earlier in chapter 19. I like how Dr. Mark Moore puts it. He says, we encounter the wedding supper of the Lamb early in chapter 19, and we expect the bridegroom, Jesus, to come dressed in a tux, ready to have dinner with us, ready for the marriage ceremony, and instead, in verse 11, he shows up and he's dressed for battle, arrayed for war. And then John, in this chapter, gives almost the exact wording found from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, where God had the prophet predict that there will come a day when he will gather, when God will gather all of his enemies together and execute them. In those two chapters, it talks about how uh, for years, Israel doesn't have to search for firewood because the weapons that were, were laid on the ground provided fire for their homes for years. It's an image for years, um, they have to keep trying to bury these bodies because they're stacked so high. And the birds just come and eat and eat and eat because there are so many bodies around. It's a vicious prediction. And that's the same prediction that we find here. And I want you to notice that the violence from this passage and in all of Revelation never come from the followers of Christ. There are three ways violence is done in Revelation. One is the enemy against the enemy. In chapter, uh, chapter 17, when the beast and the false prophet get rid, get, use the prostitute all up, the city that is driving their religious and political uh, war against Christ's followers, when they use the prostitute up, they devour her and burn her and kill her and look for a new prostitute. Enemy, uh, the evil one, always turns in on itself. It can never create anything. So we find violence in Scripture, enemy to enemy. We also find violence in this revelation where it's the enemy of Satan against followers of Christ. And here we entrust ourselves to Jesus and we go willingly to our death if it means we sacrifice lovingly to try to lead somebody to Jesus. And we also find violence in this way. God's judgment against Satan, his beast, and his false prophet, and all those who follow him will meet a judgment and the wrath of God. But it's not a vindictive wrath. It's a judgment of justice. Those who follow the beast will get what they deserve. It's both glorious and terrible. The image here is this great battle where they gather together, and then instead of a battle, there's an execution it's comforting to know that Jesus wins and Satan loses if you're on the side of Christ. The first outcome that Jesus reveals in this section is that he wins, and now we enter into the second outcome. Jesus wants us to see that Satan loses. To help reveal the outcome that Satan loses, Jesus begins with an image of destruction and of the beast and the false prophet who we met in chapter 13. Now in Revelation, he keeps repeating the same images, but he kind of mixes it up a little bit to give it a different emphasis. We know that Jesus is revealing the same time period because he's linked the great supper of God to the words of the great God, the day of the great God Almighty from chapter 16, where the false, pre, the false prophet and the beast gather all the enemies of God together for Armageddon. And in chapter 16, we see that there is no battle. They've just lined up for execution. In chapter 19, it's the same story from a different perspective, the same event from a different perspective, so that we can see the emphasis that the beast 
and the false prophet are immediately thrown into the lake of the fire. And the rest who are eaten by birds are all those who follow them. Look at verse 19. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of their mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Christ simply declares his enemies vanquished. It's just like in creation. God said, and it was created. It was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be a sun and moon, let there be a sun and moon. God meets his enemy, and he said, you are done. It is over, and it is done and over. No casualties on God's side. One moment the enemy is gathered for war, and the next minute we see vultures picking over their corpses. There's no fighting. The army never has to draw its weapons. There's no battle of Armageddon, because at judgment there is no contest. These political and religious demons that Satan uses to try to wage war against the followers of Christ, in one instant, the Word of God, they're captured and thrown in the lake of fire. And this is another picture of the end of history. Revelation several times takes us to the end of history, the day of judgment, the day Jesus comes back, and then the new creation and new, the new heaven and new earth where we will stand and live victoriously forever. Before we enter into chapter 20, and remember, we only have a couple more chapters of Revelation left. In chapter 20, there's this little phrase that we need to uh, wrap our minds around before we read it, and it is this. Hang, hang with me. Don't get too scared. Kids, hang with me. Don't, don't be bored. This is very interesting to me. There, there's a phrase in there that we're going to read in chapter 20 called a thousand years. A thousand years. That's where we find it in chapter 20. And um, Revelation has complex images and... Um, it has some, some difficult passage that we have to work through, and that's why every time we approach Revelation, we have to approach it, just like all Scripture, with great humility. So if you encounter someone who interprets those thousand years in this fashion, or interprets thousand years in this fashion, or interprets the thousand years as meaning this, here's how we're supposed to act when we encounter that person. We listen and learn with great humility. There is no possible way we get everything right about Scripture. There's no possible way that we can understand everything there is to know about Revelation. It's too deep. It's too complex. We keep learning. We keep growing. It's just like God will always forever continually learn about God. He's infinite. Even when we arrive in the new heaven, the new earth, we're in heaven forever. We will continually learn about God because he's so glorious. Revelation, the word of God, is deep that way. But there are about three ways to interpret the thousand years we're supposed to read in Revelation. Here's what, kind of what it says. It says Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and after that thousand years, he's going to be released. We're going to read that in just a second. There's about three ways to interpret this thousand years before we read it. Uh, one is called premillennialism. You might have heard of premillennialism before. Uh, what that means is uh, Christ followers, these are Christ followers who believe this, believe that uh, 
Jesus came to earth the first time and was sacrificed on the cross. He resurrected and ascended into heaven, and he's going to come back to earth the second time, and he is going to bind Satan where he is not effective and cannot seduce or trick or trap or tempt you for a literal thousand years. And during that literal thousand years on earth, everyone who follows Jesus is going to flourish and enjoy life and not be tempted. And at the very end of that thousand years, Jesus lets go of Satan, releases him to try to tempt everyone again, and then he provides judgment. Okay, that's premillennial. On earth, literal thousand years, reigning in prosperity, and then Satan is released again, and then Jesus provides judgment. Postmillennial interpret it this way. They see Jesus arriving the first time, sacrificed on the cross, and ascending into heaven. And while he's in heaven, he binds Satan where he can't tempt you. And life on earth will continually get better for a literal 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, he releases Satan to tempt you, distract you, gather all the nations together, and he comes back to judgment at the end of that 1,000 years. We follow along so far? I think I'm explaining it correctly. And there's one other view. It's called amillennialism. And that describes the thousand years this way. Jesus came to earth, sacrificed on the cross, rose, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, and that started the kingdom of God on earth. And the thousand years is symbolic time, all the time from the time of his resurrection until he comes back at the second coming. And when he arrives back at the second coming, in that moment he judges all creation, all humanity, the false prophet, the beast, and Satan and throws him into hell at the second coming right then, and then the new creation and new earth is created. Those are the three major views of that thousand years. Now, here's why we can approach this with humility and listen and learn. Because all three of these processes, all three of the ways to interpret, in the same place. New heaven and new earth, where we will stand victoriously and serve God forever as His kingdom and priest, or hell the lake of burning sulfur. We're separated at the end, no matter what, between those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. So no matter how you interpret the thousand years, you can choose any one you want. I think one of them makes more sense than the others. But no matter where you are on, that, on those decisions, we end up in the new heaven and new earth. But if you want to start a fight with a Christian... Tell them their millennial view is wrong. That's not how we're going to act. What we're going to do is we're going to listen, we're going to learn, and we're going to be united under the name of Jesus, no matter how we interpret that thousand years. But I'll tell you the way I think is best way to interpret this thousand years. In the book of Revelation, every color, every piece of clothing, every sign, and every number is a symbol that we must interpret and weigh to understand what God is trying to say. And the way we understand numbers in Revelation is we weigh them. The number seven is a really heavy number. It's completely full. It's a number of completion. 
And so when we see the number three and a half, we know it's halfway done. It's not quite full. It's not complete. But when we see the number seven, it's complete. When we see the number 10, we also know that's a heavy number. It's a number of completion. Numbers mean something in Revelation. Uh, 10 became known as the 10 days of testing. It was a complete time because it was the time Daniel and his friends, Meshach, Yershak, and a bungalow had to wait in uh, Babylon and eat vegetables and drink water. They had to do that for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was complete, and they had passed the test. Number 10 became a number of completion. Here we have John emphasizing the number 10 three times. 10 times 10 times 10. It's a symbol for a complete amount of time. In Scripture, it's already been used like this. God is the Lord, the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. Does that just mean God only owns the cattle on 1,000 hills, not 1,001 hills? Or does it mean it's a symbol he owns all the cattle everywhere? It's a symbol. Here in Revelation, I believe the best interpretation is using it as a symbol too. And one other reason why, in Revelation, we keep having this teaching method of saying the same thing from a different perspective for a different purpose called recapitulation. In Revelation, we keep having this teaching method that says the same thing from a different perspective for a different purpose to emphasize something new to us called recapitulation. In Revelation, we keep seeing this happen over and over again where Jesus recaps what he just said to emphasize something different, to train us in a different way. In Revelation, we see the same thing repeated using similar symbols combined in a different way so that we understand the same picture with a different emphasis. Do I need to say it again? Are we getting it? In, John chapter tw- in Revelation chapter 20, we see the end of the world again. We see the same scene from the beast and the prophet where they're thrown in the lake of fire from Satan's perspective. And one of the ways that he does this is he links the beginning of chapter 20 back where we first met Satan in chapter 12. I'll tell you why. Let's read chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, that's a complicated symbol, and you can see why some people think this is a literal thousand years and interpret it that way. And some people think it happens, uh, Satan is bound before that thousand years or after that thousand years. But I want to show you why I think it's a symbol. Number one, all the numbers that we've already encountered in Revelation have been a symbol. In the trumpets, for example, it says that one-third of the sun was taken away. If you're worried about global warming and a couple of inches of height from the ocean, if you take away one-third of the sun, you got big problems. But there's still, after those chapters, another 12 chapters left in the book of Revelation. It's a symbol to say it's not quite finished yet. Judgment has not reached its fulfillment. And then we come to the bowls of wrath. It's no longer one-fourth or one-third. It's complete. 
Numbers are used as a symbol. In chapter 20, verse 1, we have the angel, the key, and the abyss. It's the same way chapter 12 describes what's going on with Satan. We have in verse 2, dragon, serpent, devil, and Satan. The same words used to describe the devil in chapter 12. He's recapitulating. He's recapping what he already, he's drawing our attention back to what we've already seen. And here, he's thrown in the abyss and locked and sealed over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. When did Satan lose? When did Christ declare victory? It was when he was on the cross. Jesus declared victory when he died and resurrected from the cross. And it was in that moment that Satan is bound completely. And what I mean by that is maybe different than what you might take it. We had a, a delivery the other day. Um, I don't know if it was FedEx or Amazon. And our dog, who is joyful and playful and on a chain, was straining to get to the delivery man. And he went over to pet our dog, who just wanted to enjoy his company. And he went too far. He stepped inside her chain circle. So... She wrapped him in her chain, knocked him down. And she is a joyful good dog. She wasn't trying to hurt him. Satan is bound to earth, and if you step inside of his chain, he will wrap you up and knock you down and kill you. But it's a symbol. In chapter 12, it's told he is bound to earth, and he is enraged because he can no longer go back and forth between heaven and earth. In chapter 12, it says he can no longer attack God or attack Jesus, so he has to attack the followers of Christ. You want to know how you get wrapped up in the chain of Satan? You go pursue a sin or a lifestyle that leads you away from God, and he will knock you down, and he will try to kill you. You want to know how to stay out of that chain length? Pursue Christ. Set your holiness marker as close to Jesus as you can. Another example is when Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison multiple times in his ministry, and every time he was in prison, his ministry flourished. Paul wrote 13 out of the 27 New Testament books of our Bible, and a lot of them he wrote while he was bound in prison. When he was in chains on his feet and his hands, shackles on his hands and his feet, him and Silas sang, the doors of the prison were open, their shackles fell off, and the captain of the guard was converted to Christianity, converted to follow Christ. His ministry still happened even though he was bound. Satan is bound by Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus has bound Satan, but that doesn't mean he has no effect and can't do anything. It just means that we receive the Holy Spirit, and he who is within you is more powerful than he who that is in the, within the world. And if you reject Satan, he has to flee from you. If you call on the name of Christ, he rules over Satan and he can't touch you. And Jesus gives you a way out every time you're tempted by Satan so that you don't have to fall to temptation because Satan is limited. And before Christ came, all the Gentile nations of the world did not believe in Jesus and were deceived by Satan. But now that Jesus is resurrected and he sent the church into the world, we now conquer Satan with the truth of Scripture and the sword of our mouth, the gospel that we proclaim. So why is he released? In chapter 13... 
The beast and the false prophet gather all the nations of the world to come to Armageddon to battle the Lord. And they've come for their execution. In chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet, it's recapitulated. We, we recap it again. They've gathered all the nations of the world to come and fight Christ at Armageddon, but it's over. He declares them defeated. Satan is released at that time because he works with the beast and the false prophet to gather all the nations. It's just repeating the same story, to fight Jesus. In Roman times, the time of John, they would have victory parades. The emperor, when he would conquer a nation, he would have a victory parade for himself. And the emperor would lead the parade. He would be dressed as a god with a crown on his head, riding a white horse. Behind him would be all the spoils of war, all the gold and the treasure, all the stuff that they've captured from their enemy. Behind that would be the animals that they were going to sacrifice to the emperor because he was their god. Behind the animals were all the prisoners they had captured who had been bound until this parade. And behind those prisoners was the king of the nation the Roman emperor had destroyed. Now, oftentimes, when these battles occurred, by the way, 18 times these victory parades are recorded, and 18 times this is how the parade goes. The victory over the nation could have been a year ago, and these prisoners and this king have been in prison, bound until the parade time. They've been released for the parade and the emperor sets himself up on a throne and they bring him the spoils of the war and they set it before him and then they bring the animals and they sacrifice the animals to the emperor and then they bring the prisoners which the emperor takes a sword and kills to show that he is God over them. Now that's God with a little g. And last but not least is the king of the nation he has conquered and the emperor kills him last. Listen. He threw him into the abyss, locked it, and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the complete time has ended. After that, he's set free for a short time. What's he set free for? His execution. It's over. This is the end of the world. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. If you die while you're in Christ, out of the body is to be with the Lord you are experiencing what John describes as the first resurrection. When you die, you go and be in the presence of Christ, the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, being thrown into the lake, the burning lake, which we're going to find out later is the second death. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign for him for a thousand years. What do we do with numbers in Revelation? We weigh them. They reign with him a complete time. We see in Revelation time and time again, those who have died and have gone to be with Christ reign with Jesus as the kingdom of God and priest in heaven. Just like we're supposed to be the kingdom of God and priest of heaven here while we're on earth. Verse 7, Satan loses himself. He's lost his power, now he loses himself. 
When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, same words used in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Remember, he's linking us back to the birds of the air in chapter 19, which is linking us back to the destruction. Okay. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth. They surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, Armageddon, the last battle. Is there a battle in Revelation? Is there any war in Revelation? Is there any arm wrestling match between good and evil in Revelation? No. They gather together, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan loses his demons, he loses his power, and he loses himself. Satan loses. Christ wins. If you are with Christ, you win. If, if you do not know Christ, but you want to make a decision for the Lord, you want to stand victoriously, would you let somebody know? You can see me afterwards today. I'll put on my mask. We can talk together, and I'll help you find your next best step. And if you're at home and you haven't made a decision for Christ, would you let somebody know as soon as possible? Email us at church or write it in the chat room. Just ask what your next best step is because the scripture tells you what your next best step is where you can be assured that you will stand victoriously in heaven. And that's how chapter 20 ends. I saw a great white throne of him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name written in the book of life? The call of Revelation keeps repeating. Who can stand under the wrath of the Lamb? It's those who are in Christ. What do we do while we stand? While we're protected spiritually, we bear witness like the faithful and true witness of Jesus Christ. Well, how long do we do it? We do it until Jesus gives us release to stop. We do it until He either comes back or we die and we go and be in the presence of the Lord. Revelation is an encouragement and a motivator to stay the course as long as today is today. And he gives us something to encourage and remind us to do this, and it's called communion. At the beginning of chapter 19, it says, in the first six verses, the first ten verses, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So they had this feast with the wedding supper of, of the Lamb, the followers of Christ with Christ, and they immediately in chapter, chapter 19, verse 11, go to war. A time of peace, reminded about Jesus' victory, and then war. When Jesus had his last supper with the disciples in the upper room, they had a moment of peace where he said, take and eat and remember what I've done for you. And then they immediately go out to engage in spiritual warfare where Jesus was tempted to not even go to the cross. 
here today as we celebrate communion and we're reminded of what Jesus did for us, we have our moment of peace, our reminder and our motivator, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And then we will leave this room and we will leave our worship gathering and we are going back into spiritual warfare. Would you take out your bread and would you eat it together with the rest of the family of God and remember the body of Christ that was shed for you. Go on and eat the bread. And would you open your cup? Which is a really weird thing for me to say. And as you prepare to drink the cup, would you remind yourself of the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Christ that declares victory, not only for Jesus Christ, but for all of those who follow after him. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, made whole and complete, declared righteous, so we can go out and imitate him. Would you drink the cup and remember what he's done for you? When we leave this place, we are going out to our calling to bear witness for Christ and to do that until he comes again and takes us home. We're going to be hearing about home, chapter 21 and 22, next week. And in the meantime, in the meantime, stay the course because Jesus wins and Satan loses. Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank you so much for that reminder that you give us the wedding supper of the Lamb that we have here on earth it's a reminder and an encourager that we can stay the course. I thank you for the scripture that details out from different points of view the destruction of our enemy and the victory we have over sin, over Satan, and even death. Thank you for giving us that victory through Jesus Christ on the cross, and it is his name that we declare with joy and hope, and it is his name we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. May God bless you and keep you we are dismissed. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.